Blog Talk Radio. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn. 
and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 Colonel with African Awareness, and I've been involved in the struggle for a long, long time. Uh, one of the things I'm adamant about is this whole question in terms of uh, um, certain structures in the community in terms geared toward specifically identifying what the problems are that African people face. So in my in my estimation, these, these institutions are indispensable, and so I encourage people to get about the business of building those institutions 
Because if we're talking about struggle, then we can't talk about reasonably without some so understanding in terms of the kind of formal structures that must be in place to ensure the longevity of, of that struggle. So I encourage people to build those organizations, to build those institutions, because they're critical to our survival, you know, in the 21st century. Thank you, Brother Aki. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. We will say happy African um, history month to you, Brother Anthony, and welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Brother Africa. A revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And finally, Brother Anthony, we now will bring in our Brother Moses, and we'd like to wish him a happy African History Month. And Brother Moses, Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you. You vote, Brother Moses? That's excellent, because we're going to talk about voting in the world of illusion deception as it relates to voting. So we're going to expect you to guide us and direct us into a world reality. <laughs> Okay, Brother Moses, you know we love you. Amen. So anyway, to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. As always, we're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Because you can join us today as we do our tribute to African History Month under the theme, A World of Illusion and Deception. But before we go directly to our theme, like always, we're going to ask our panelists at this point in time, just give us a little brief update on what's going on in their world and their community. We'll start out with you, Brother Hackey. What's going on in your world and the community? <clears throat> yeah, Brother Africa, I ran across a very interesting story. Uh, it appeared this young lady, Catherine Bryan, out of North Carolina, was on an American Airlines flight. She received a statement uh, from her from her, uh, from her bank stating she had an Afri- she had an African American service charge on her on her bill. <laughs> now of course the question is what is an African American uh uh service charge? What 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 does that mean? You know, one of the things uh, that immediately came to mind is that this whole question in terms of price discrimination uh is I think is, is maybe maybe an issue here. Because one of the things in terms of maximizing profits is okay for business to discriminate against uh people based upon, you know, the ability to profit. And so, therefore, if you label, you know, somehow African people as somehow um, um, incapable of having the uh, the finances in terms of, you know, of, of you know, of formatting some type of suit or class or, or court action against you, then you much more the company is much more inclined to actually target African people in terms of additional charges, which may explain this whole African American service charge that you see on her on her statement. 
Now, when she inquired at the, at the at American Airlines to find out why was that statement, why was such a statement included in her bill, they didn't have a comment. They intimated that perhaps it was her bank or her or her credit card company responsible for such a statement. Uh, regardless of her effort in terms of trying to address this issue, no matter who she talked to, whether it was the bank or the credit card company, you know, or American Airlines, no one took responsibility for that particular statement. Even though by virtue of that statement being on her bill, it does have some connotation. It does mean something. And so, therefore, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I think we've got to come to grips with is that given the fact that the, and, and the times of decline and businesses are finding any and all kind of ways in terms of maximizing profits, simply because the bottom line is that uh, the situation is so grim economically that this kind of chicanery, this kind of trickery, this kind of uh, discrimination is only is only is only is only uh, is actually increasing, and no no question, uh, you know, if as long as businesses see an opportunity in terms of maximizing profits, um, if that includes discrimination, then they don't have a problem with that. And the problem is that from a legal point of view, uh, there is no no really statute that follows that even that even deals with the question in terms of you know pricing discrimination, uh, particularly as it relates to discriminatory practices. So this is the problem that we're confronted with in terms of this, this kind of this kind of incident. So needless to say that so when you travel American Airlines and you and you got your MasterCard and uh, you know um, I wish you would convey what what banks you're dealing with. But in any event, uh, the mere fact that uh, someone saw fit to label it as an African American service charge means that uh, someone uh, 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 focus has been toward uh, uh, not serving people equally. But perhaps serving people um, um, in, a, in a manner which is not which is not equal. So, in any event, I'll close with saying that, Brother Africa, and I just find it very interesting, you know, that this, this situation arose, and that the mere fact that it arose speaks violence in terms of the pernicious nature of racism in American society, and why it's not going anywhere. But I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Uh, certainly. Um, uh, let's see. It seems as if, uh, uh, you know, early indications are uh, uh, Biden is going to continue a lot of the foreign policies that uh, Trump pushed when he was in office, which we predicted as uh, as the election campaigns were going on. Uh, Biden is uh, is a cap uh, is a capitalist like Trump, and uh, you know, and um, we didn't uh, anticipate his policies to be much different from those of Trump, especially with regard to par- uh, to foreign policy which a lot of people in the U.S. do not pay adequate attention to, especially, uh, uh, you know, uh, th- those of us who are African. And uh, and that has serious implications, whether people realize it or not. Uh, but anyway, a lot of the policies toward uh, Cuba and Venezuela are continuing, and uh, that has serious implications for those Africans living 
in those two countries. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, I urge people to stay alert to what's happening around them and not only around them, but also around the world. And on that note, Brother Anthony, I would say to you, welcome to the world of illusions and deceptions. Let's move on to our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, okay, happy African History Month, and what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, Brother Africa. This being African History Month, uh, Black History Month, uh, is one of the burning questions of the of the of the moment and the hour of the of this era is the nation question. Um, we, as for scientific socialism, we have to apply dialectical and historical materialisms to all issues. We have to have a scientific approach. You know, we have to be political scientists, if you dare. And so when we diagnose a situation, we have to be accurate. Uh, it has to it has to not just be an idea, but it has to be a material reality, uh, which, which that the idea describes. And so as a, in terms of a nation, a nation is a historically constituted community of people. And uh, you can't just, invent nations uh, out of the air uh, because you have uh, uh, ideological or cultural or, or some kind of unity or, on an ideological level. You know, it takes a material uh, reality, a material condition, a historically evolved community of people. Uh, and so, you know, it's with that, it's, it's that spirit. We have to look at, at the Black Belt South and we have to look at Israel, and we have to apply scientific socialism to the question. And uh, and uh, you know, Israel is a, is an ideological nation only in in idea, and there is no material basis, material reality of a nation. And uh, whereas in the Black Belt South, there is a material reality. And you know, and so I I just want to want to make that statement right now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls. We're going to play some music, uh, Liberation. And when we come back, we can continue just a little bit longer on this question of what's going on in our world and the community. And we invite you to call in at 323-679-0841. Passport Rev, Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. Rock the Bell Radio! What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. Last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did. It's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like, uh-huh. 
Since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. 
Heaven the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back their gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you. you have been listening to Brother Kwame Ture speaking about the African bourgeoisie and class struggle. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon as we celebrate African History Month. We're going back to our political panelists and analysts. I'm going to just talk a little bit more about what's going on in our world and the community. We'll come back to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, I'll ask for you to scrapulate a little bit more on the significance of um, this issue with American Airlines and how they took the identity of um, Africans, you know, in down in Charlottesville and use that skin color and their identity as a means of charging more money. You know, speaking of that, I was told that it's even legal for car dealerships. They can openly charge people more money even based upon their ethnicity makeup, and it's not illegal. So when we talk about this whole world of illusion and deceptions, um, this seems to be taking place all throughout business practices. Um, your response to that? Yeah. yeah, well, I think that is the quintessential problem. Uh, pricing discrimination is legal. That is a problem. Whenever African people uh, purchase anything with a home or automobile or whatever, the prices automatically increase. And so it's one of those things in which, you know, unfortunately there hasn't been much discussion around these around price and discrimination, particularly as it impacts, negatively impacts African people. Uh, but certainly it's one of those discussions that have to take place. But the problem is that it's a well-established principle in the business world, and so they don't have a problem with it until they do it routinely. But what makes it unique about the sister, sister in North Carolina, the mere fact that uh, apparently uh, somebody uh, had to have seen her to know that she was, in fact, uh, African-American. Uh, which, which you, know, you know what I mean? So it seems to me that the... Um, you know, unless the the card the, the card company or the credit card company or her bank, well, uh, unless they're cognizant of the fact that she's an African person, 
uh, there seems to me there wouldn't be no need in terms of putting African-American service charge on her bill. Uh, the only reason they could do such a thing is that someone was uh, uniquely convinced that, in fact, that she was, in fact, African-American, so therefore putting African-American service charge on her statement uh, was something uh, um, uh, maybe maybe not consciously done, but I think it sort of underscores certain business practices uh, with respect to the entity that's responsible for uh, for uh, putting that uh, on her on her statement. Uh, but one of the things with Brother Africa, I think, is, you know, we we have to be very very clear in terms of when we when we talk about in terms of equity in the marketplace. Uh, you know, we we can't be so naive in the 21st century to think that in fact that uh, is an equal playing field, particularly when it comes to the business world. It's not. There are certain perceptions that uh, permeate the business world, and uh, among those perceptions is the notion. You know that uh, that uh, African people, uh, by and large, you know, are pretty much um, uh, uh, unacquainted with the business world, and so therefore, this kind of discrimination that they practice against us, they are convinced that we don't reasonably, we could never, never uh, appreciate or understand the impact of these kind of practices. So I think this kind of bias is sort of imp- implicit in the business world, and it goes back to it goes back a far, a long, long way. I think when we talk about in terms of the uh, the kind of um, situation that confronted African people during the time of enslavement. I think one of the things that certain perceptions or certain certain views or certain ideas were put forth to sort of you know sort of characterize who who we are as a people. So I think those kind of stereotypic views in terms of who we are as a people persist to today. And so therefore, as such, then we can anticipate that um, something as simple, something as simplistic as the right to respect, uh, the right to common courtesy. The right to fair business dealing. Uh, that those when we make those assumptions, we do so not understanding that there's a long history in place to make sure that says that uh, courtesy is not afforded African people, respect is not afforded African people, certain business dealings are not fair business dealings not afforded African people. And so we have to understand this is part of the history, and it's part of the reason why we have to continue to struggle in terms of bringing about the kind of results that we want in terms of making a more a level playing field. Uh, but you know, uh, one thing I, I want to say in terms of in terms of you know, brother brother Moses, uh, you know, brother Moses was uh, comment. Uh, one of the things is that you know when we when we talk about the kind of um, uh, the kind of deception employed by people in positions of power, I think one of the things that we we got to understand is that you know they will resort to deception in all means, and in fact they have a long history of deception, and it's unreasonable for us to. To believe that in fact this kind of deception is going to change, it's, it's not going to change. It's going to it's going to continue to to continue to to operate. And as such, it seems to me that the only real solution is, if in fact, if these kind of options persist, the only real the only real solution for our people is to confront this 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 these delusions and and begin to understand concretely. You know, the situation that we're confronted with is not only problematic, uh, you know, from a, from a moral perspective, but from a political perspective, potentially is very, very dangerous because, you know, when you got these kind of prevailing attitudes among those people in positions of power to affect or to essentially do whatever they want to you, uh, if their perception is that you don't have any recourse, there's nothing that you can do in terms of taking it, then what's going to happen is that, you know, you sort of empower them, you know, uh, you know on, on a, implicitly. So I think that this is a real danger when we talk about in terms of these kind of business practices in which they in which they allude to, you know, people's um in terms of people's, you know, people's skin color. So I think when we talk about building a nation, that's one of the things that we got to we, we, we had to take into consideration is you know, in building a nation, uh we we, we have to ask ourselves ourselves is it is it feasible if 
If it's feasible, then you go forward. If it's not feasible, then you don't. But certainly it's a question that you have to raise in terms of um, uh, as part of the strategy in terms of moving forward because one of the things is very, very clear. They're not going to allow you to simply persist in the society. There's, 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 there's uh, problems to be had if you're going to continue to o- occupy this space that they call America. So it seems to me this question in terms of, you know, uh, you know, creating a homeland, uh, you know, creating a state, uh, you know, is something that has to be part of the equation in terms of, you know, struggle in terms over in terms of uh, the, 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 uh, the legitimacy of such a claim. Because it seems to me that uh, if, if, if you were going to peacefully co-op or peacefully co-op, co- um, peacefully uh, operate within the context of the system, then I think the reality is that they're not simply they're not going to, they're not not only structurally not uh, going to allow that, but philosophically are not set up to even accommodate our desire in terms of being part of this. So it seems to me that this question in terms of uh, you know you know five southern states in terms of you know in terms of creating a um, creating a um, a homeland for African people, I think it's something that people have to take in, take into consideration, you know, as a strategy in terms of our, our empowerment, you know, in the society. Brother Anthony, let's talk about Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe in reality of how different he may be and how different he is as it relates to all the political politicians that came before him. And when we talk about this world of illusion and deception, how is he any different from any other of these politicians who have occupied that seated position called the U.S. presidency? Um, he, uh, actually, he's not any different if you look at, uh, the U.S. presidency historically, uh, they they all have been capitalists. Uh, some of them former military officials in some cases, but uh, all have been capitalists. All have advocated capitalism, and have been against. Uh, the, uh, the 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 rule of the uh, of the people by the majority of the people, uh, which is why you have the electoral college in place. For example, uh, the electoral college was created as a mechanism for selecting the president of the United States because the authors of the Constitution did not believe uh, the voting uh, uh, public, which inclu- which uh, was limited to European males, was competent to choose their own leadership. Okay. And Brother Moses, um, based on what you have heard so far, you have any kind of response? You'd like to add to what has been stated so far? No, um, no, um, I think you know things are pretty clear. Um, I'm just for applying dialectical and historical materialism to all questions. A uh, scientific socialism is uh, thoroughly scientific uh, in terms of the national question. You know, the national colonial question 
was addressed by J.B. Stalin for the Bolshevik Party, and um, that's a very good um, uh, collection of works uh, which defines the na- defines what a nation is scientifically, etc. And I think that's a reference point. But anyway, I'm, I'm satisfied. Thank you. Okay, you listen to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do is take a quick uh, station break, and when we come back, we will entertain our theme today as we do our tribute to so-called African History Month, which is a world of illusions and deception. We'll be back with our political panelists, and we're going to talk about some realities as it relates to the issue of illusions and deception that are being played on our people on a daily basis. This is Africa on the Moon. Africa 
brought to America's fighting upon our arrival, and we're still fighting for our survival. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon, and we do this special program, a tribute to African History Month. Our theme is a world of illusions and deception. We'll start off with you, Brother Haki. Can you talk about some of your experiences of interacting with people in this particular society where you can where you have seen how they have been impacted by various illusions and deceptions that have been played um on them and and, and it has caused them to view the world from an unrealistic perspective in terms of its true reality. Well, Brother Africa, there's just, just too many examples to enumerate. I mean, there's just so much. Uh, I, I think probably I'll stop this notion, in fact, that uh, that things that things are fair in society. I always find that a very extraordinary claim. And, and what I always say to people, I'm saying if you really believe that, then I want you to look at the social economic indicators of society. Look at it. What do you see? Uh, I'll tell you what you see. Consistently, you see African people at the bottom. Now, contrast those socioeconomic indicators and look in terms of level of education uh, per capita, and in terms of your average, in terms of Africans who actually went to, to university, graduated from universities. Well, there's a real disconnect between the numbers of African people who have finished universities and employment opportunities. So that suggests that there's something systematically going on in terms of limiting people's opportunities in terms of employment. Particularly when you start talking about a situation where when you talk about, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, white, high school whites or high school dropouts, white, white dropouts uh, having more uh, economic opportunity than college graduate African people, then that speaks volumes in terms of something systematically, something is, something is going on. But I think also one of the things I, I find very, you know, extraordinary, one, one of the claims is that you, you often hear is, that, you know, when we... When we talk about in terms of you know you know Africanity, uh, very interesting. Inevitably, someone says that, uh, but, but we're we're not African. We're you know we're we're different than. Uh, and so again, you ask them. So well, you know, it seems to me there's a little history is in order here. If you go back and you look at the origin of human beings, okay, if we if we understand that the origin of human beings go back to Africa, and in fact, you know, the African people, you know, are, are the are the African Omega. Then it seems to me that those people, you know, uh, you know, who are dark skin, woolly hair, uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, there's a there's a there's a there's a, a fundamental or uh, 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 correlation between, uh, you know, people who are diaspora who look a certain way, and it can't be divorced from the reality that you know, all people come from 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 the, from the from the dark continent, uh, no pun intended. But so clearly, you know. Um, you know, when you try to get people to think about this stuff, it's a very, very difficult thing to do because one of the things is that is for a lot of people from a psychological point of view, they've been indoctrinated with this notion that in terms of to a large extent that the skin color defines who you are. And also they've been indoctrinated with this belief in, in, in fact that uh, intel- your skin color determines your intelligence. So you got all of these factors working in their mind, and, and this stuff is being inculcated in the minds of people over long periods of, a long period of time. And so for them, it's just natural to think that in terms of skin color uh, being uh, defining the determinant, determinant in terms of, you know, one's abilities. 
So I can see in that context, people understand, people would, 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 would have no problem in terms of justifying the exploitation of African people because in the subconscious, what they're really saying is that the exploitation of African people or the, the subjugation of African people is justified simply because African people are just not as, as fit as others. So clearly, you know, we is the the, the is a very it's a very open kind of uh, question, Brother Africa. There's so many there's so many examples in terms of people internalizing uh, uh, ideas which are antithetical to their own interests, uh, but simply because they don't they don't take the time to even learn their own history, and so they've been indoctrinated into a lot of Western history, not even knowing what they call Western history. So in fact, when you go back and look at it, it's really African history, but they just don't realize that because they've been indoctrinated to believe that in fact that is that is Western history. So clearly, Brother Africa is a very loaded question. There's as many ways you can confront this question, but those two examples will suffice, and I close with that. Okay. Uh, I would add... Uh, to the points that Brother Haki made is that uh, is that uh, in the U.S. the educational system is controlled by the bourgeoisie, which means they control the ideas uh, that we uh, that we're, we're taught from uh, pre-K to Ph.D. level in these uh, various institutions that we're in. And uh, and that includes ideas about uh, the world and uh, who has dominance over it. And, um, you know, and uh, those Africans that inculcate these ideas, uh, you know, thoroughly, they do, they become a part of the petty bourgeoisie in African society, and become the mouthpieces for capitalism. Whereas those who uh, who have uh, who, who who truly understand that they owe their knowledge to the sacrifices of the masses of African people. You know they they uh, they dedicate the, them the, themselves to service to the African community, and uh, and that's where we have the class struggle among the intelligentsia today. You know, panelists, let, let's 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 speak truth to power like always. Let's talk a little a little bit about the reality of how history is a known as a continuance, but the past directly uh, impact and help shape our present. And I'm saying that we're in the context of, under the theme, we're talking about a world of illusion and deception. Probably one of the biggest deception illusions that has been sold to us was the perception that we are free under the capitalist system under the new form of capitalist system going from slavery to capitalism to a best stage the opposite of slavery. Under a capitalist system it's no more than another advanced stage of slavery. 
our people are living in slavery. That is the real reality. Well, in the, well, in terms of living on illusion, we believe that if someone give you a token, a token uh, means of a, some item that they call money, where they can exchange your goods and services, then that's what allows you to be free. Well, they don't look at that the real uh, essence of freedom when you're talking about a people, and we're not talking about individuals, because individuals um, cannot be free if their people are not free, is that when we're talking about how work is, is organized, how production is done, how people set value on, on what is um, value and what is not value, when you're talking about people making policies based on being able to find what is your human worth is, all of this add up to another form, just outright slavery, just in a different form. And they sold us the cane of goods, saying that you can be free under capitalism. Parents, can we truly be free under any form of a capitalist system? The mic is open. The form, the form of exploitation you're, you're you're referring to, Brother Africa, is what is called wage slavery. In other words, they replace the uh, 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 the, uh, the the chain and whip with money, basically. And um, you know, and uh, the masters of African people are today wage slaves. And uh, and the thing about it, though, and the thing about it, though, um, you know, this is manifesting the fact that a lot of us uh, bend over backwards to get to work on time because uh, timely, uh, good attendance is one of the concrete measures they, the, uh, the concrete measurements they use to measure your productivity. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, a lot of us bend over backwards to get to work on time. And that is because we fear, a lot of us uh, live in fear of the people who sign our timesheets or our bosses. And uh, that is uh, is, uh, wage slavery. Where, uh, where where you depended upon the wage uh, to provide upon uh, to provide your food, clothing, and shelter. And uh, and uh, you're correct, brother Africa. It is another form of slavery. It's just that it takes a different form, a less harsh form, so to speak. But it's ne- uh, is nevertheless very real. And I would add that um, 
way slavery is 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 as real as chattel slavery. It's just that the methods of coercion are different, and also the ownership uh, uh, the uh, the ownership of labor is different as well. Capitalism um, encompasses um, wage slavery. Um, you have to dispossess the the workers from uh, wealth and um, have them to be a reserve army of labor at all times at your disposal. And so the capitalists are able to 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 lure the workers back to work because they have the the income that the workers need in order to provide for food, clothes, and shelter. And so you know, it's a vicious system. Um, the way the the capitalists, you know, try to maintain the wage slave system, but the workers demand not just an end to the wage, high wages for the wage slave. It's not the demand high wages for the wage slave. It's not the end all demand, but an end to the wage slave system itself. And we need free education, free health care, and uh, uh, a community fund which provides for for the common good, and uh, that's that's the socialist system that we're striving for. Thank you. Hello, Brother Africa? Yes, we had some problems, some technical difficulties. Please forgive us. But um, we're back on the board now. Yes, we want to talk a little bit about this whole issue and question of, um, as a good example of a world of illusion and deception, when we want to look at a good example of that, let's take out the issue of, um, or the issue of, of sports. You know, they try to sell us this example that sports is um, a great model where this whole concept of equality, illusion, and fairness take place. But, panelists, I would like to y'all to respond to this question of, do you see sports as a good model that represents this whole question of inclusion, fairness, and equality? Because, for example, one thing I never understood, and maybe you can share some clarity on this issue with me, is that if you have a team of 52 ball players and you have an owner who dictates and negotiates what the policy in terms of the pay wages would be for each particular ball player, but at the same time we say all one team, all for one goal and go in one direction, you also have a policy where you place a value on each position. And based on the value you give for that position, that's the amount of money that one would be allowed to um, be a, be allowed to um, to sign a contract for, or, or or will be paid for. For example, how do you take one position where you allocate at close to thirty to forty percent on one position, and the remaining of the monies that's left must be divided among the other fifty one 
positions of ball players that make up their team. For example, if you look at the position of a quarterback and how monies and market value are set, you know one quarterback in as much as twenty to thirty percent of the total budget of the whole football team. Now, how does that equate to the whole question of equality and fairness? And on top of that, even if you look at their position, this is how very sophisticated they can be in terms of how they can allocate money uh, to people based upon one's ethnic makeup. We know in football alone, the majority of quarterbacks who play quarterback in the National Football League are basically of European descent. So here you have a position to take up 20, 30, 40% of the total pay, and you're giving it to that position, and that position dominated based by a particular makeup of a particular group of people, which in this case would be Europeans' quarterback. So how do y'all view this whole illusion of sports as relates to this whole question of fairness, inclusion, and, and justice, panelists? It's not fair. Uh, let's see. I mean, um, I mean, especially when it comes to team sports. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. A, 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 a quarterback is only uh, as effective as his teammates are. It's a team sport, and the same applies to. Um, well, uh, well, baseball is less of a team sport to a certain extent, but uh, you know, basketball—you you name it, any team sport. Uh, let's see. Uh, let let let's see. Uh, uh, the uh, in, in a team sport, the whole is equal to the sum of its parts in terms of overall performance. Now, the fact that there's this disparity. Uh, in salaries among uh, among members of the same team, indicates that there is a, a high degree of class stratification inside sports. Anyone else would like to take a stab at that? Hi, Keith Moses. Team has a has a division of labor and there's different specialties, um, um, positions um, that have responsibilities that go with the position. And uh, certainly, you know, we, when you when you start analyzing uh, um, the critical, what 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 position is more critical than another? That's where the quarterback comes in, and uh, and they decide that the quarterback is is more of a critical position. Uh, and they want to pay him more as a result. Uh, that, uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 a very tricky question because you know, uh, in the division of labor, uh, um, is all labor equal? That becomes the issue uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, the position and what what it contributes to the product. The product, uh, winning of the game, etc. Uh, it's a, it's a tricky little question there. Uh, I could see, I could see how how a quarterback might want to get more money. I mean, I I I can see that. Although from a philosophical and some kind of politically uh, 
a correct position. You might, you could argue that it's all labor and it's all one team and the team effort and, and there should be egalitarianism and, and that uh, equality of pay. Uh, I could see that argument being made. Uh, uh, but like I said, this, this is politics gets involved and when people get involved, people's interests, uh, that, that's where uh, differences and contradictions manifest themselves and we're in a class society and so obviously uh, hierarchy is a is a natural feature of society and so and so hierarchy leads to uh stratification of income and different salaries. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else do we have hacky but hacky back yet? You got the feedback. We got the feedback, okay. Hi, right, brother Hackey. What we're going to do is, we're going to ask you if you can address the issue of when we talk about a world of illusion and deception. One of the things I think um, that has held people back is in terms of our conception of, of, of development and progress. And one of the trick games they play with us is that structurally they know it's impossible as a group to allow large sums of our people to participate in the economic, political arena on an equal level. So what they do is they may choose or allow the conditions for one or two of us to participate at a certain level in a particular industry or in a particular um, game that they have established and project that individual as being a form of progress for the group. For example... This recent election where they elected a young lady who's um, African descent, or at least she has a biological makeup of an African, and um, and they called this a form of victory in progress uh, for African people. So you see these kind of maneuvers as another form of illusion, of inclusion, and deception that's being played in terms of keeping our people from truly trying to struggle for true advancement as a group. You got the back. You got the. Uh, you got the background noise. Is background. Okay, I tell you, continue to, to speak, and uh, we'll see if we can do some kind of adjustment to it. Go ahead, brother Aki. Yeah. Um. Well, I think. You know, it's a it's it's a, it's an old deception. You know, this you know one of the things I, I think you know, the, the other panelists alluded to was that one of the things that you don't want to do is to create uh, a level playing field. In creating a level playing field, you create the possibilities in terms of economic equity. If you create economic equity, then there's no basis in terms, of, at least from a financial point of view, in terms of uh, creating uh, a um, a uh, oppression that is effective. In other words, with the more capital African people have access to, the more opportunity they have to actually impact the systems that govern the lives of African people. And so, therefore, those people in positions of power understand that. So, therefore, they don't want to create a scenario potentially where African people will benefit economically uh, or equitably in terms of economics. I think one of the things when they when they showcase you know certain individuals in terms of giving them a give, giving them a piece of the pie, uh, one of the things was very very clear. 
uh, that is a part of a strategy. Uh, that is the creative perception that, in fact, that you know, if if you if you work hard enough, if you do this, if you do this to do that, then in fact, at some point, you too can uh, 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 have access to these kind of earnings. But it's a game that they play. They understand that. They they understand it's a game. And so, as long as they can keep people thinking in terms of individualistically, uh, then they win. And so, for those people who say, "Well, let's, you know, well, young people look at the rappers and look at the celebrities and say, well, they're making money. I want to be like them." That's all in fine. But the problem is that in terms of bringing about bringing about the real kind of change, the kind of empowerment our people need, it cannot be achieved individually. It has to be done collectively. And so, the interest of the of the powerful is to make sure that we never come to the realization that we have to work collectively in terms of bringing about the kind of change that we desire. So clearly, when we talk about in terms of the the, the, the inequality with respect to economics, uh, one of the things we understand is that you know if if we're not thinking in terms of economically doing something in terms of you know empowering ourselves, then we're, we're deluding ourselves. And the only way we can empower ourselves, economically speaking, is that we have to understand what the nature of the beast is. We got to understand specifically the structures that we have to we have to work within the context of, in terms of bringing about the kind of economic changes that we desire. It's not easy. Because one of the things we have to understand is that as we seek to bring about a redress in terms of the economic shortcomings uh, in this capitalist society, we understand that every time we make a positive move, then we understand that people in positions of power are also going to make a, a counter move. In other words, they're going to make sure that um, those things that we do that do truly empower our people are somehow uh, negated or, 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 or minimized. And so it's part of a strategy, and people have to, African people have to be able to understand that. And uh, so don't fall for the tricks. And so when they point of this 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 token African in front of you and say, Well, okay, well this person is uh should be idolized. Then we've got to ask ourselves, so why are you elevating this particular person? What are the real benefits to you as an oppressor in terms of elevating this particular person? So keep in mind, the oppressor is never going to elevate anybody who's who whose position is diametrically opposed to, 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 to their to the you know, to their oppression or to the to the to the at least to the maximization of their of oppression, they're only going to elevate those individuals who can sort of legitimize the kind of oppression, the kind of economic disparities that exist in society, because it serves their interests. And so we as a people have to begin to understand the relationship. So whenever they elevate somebody, we have to instinctively ask ourselves, "Huh? So why you elevate these people? So what are the benefits to the system to elevate these people? So why?" And we have to ask ourselves that. So at the point that they start elevating folks, then you distinctly have to ask yourself, so what are the benefits of the system? And so once we understand the, the, how the game is played, then we, 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 we're in a better shape in terms of being able, you know, to work together in terms of trying to create a kind of paradigm, the kind of economic uh, activities for our people uh, that we seek. But it has to be done collectively, uh, and which means that, you know, uh, in terms of bringing about some economic parity, then we have to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to work in the context of America. And we have to seek that globally, but we have to be organized as a people in order to bring it to bring it to to, to bring it to existence. I remember a time when when um, Muhammad Gaddafi promised uh, the African community a billion dollars. Uh, he was going to be African Union a billion dollars in terms of development. Well, we were so disorganized, we wouldn't even position even accept a billion dollars. I mean, that's how disorganized we are as a people. So organization is key, and once we become organized, understand that the opportunity in terms of bring about some economic parity lies outside the borders of America, then we don't feel compelled to play the game that's been perpetuated against us by people in positions of power who make sure who are committed to the oppression of African people, particularly when it comes to um, lack of an economic base. So I think it's all hinges upon you know organization and understanding 
you know, that their game's been perpetuated and it's up to us not to continually fall for the games that they that they perpetuate. You know you know, panelists, um in closing for today's program, it will illusion deception. I'd like to have each one of y'all to uh, discuss the ramifications and the danger when you talk about illusion deceptions of the model of striving to become billionaires and millionaires. Is that a good thing for African people at this point in time in terms of our development? Who would like to start that discussion off first? Uh, no. Uh, it is not a good thing at this time because under capitalism, where there is rich, there must be poor. And that is only because uh, uh, rich people get rich off of exploiting the labor of the working poor. And uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, you, you know, don't seem to understand that in this society. And that's because the educational system is controlled by the bourgeoisie. And, uh, and it's their ideas that are taught in the school systems in which we're educated in. Which is why a lot a, a lot of people in the working class tend to work against their own interests, and uh, and we uh, and we run with this concept of individualism, which doesn't work, and never has worked in our interests. And, uh, you know, and uh, we need to be in organizations that are guided by a revolutionary ideology. That's the ultimate solution to our problems. Brother Hackey, what is the problem that danger or aspiring to um, look up to and become billionaires and millionaires, look at the prison conditions of our people? Is that a good thing? No, I think brother, I think brother Anthony was absolutely correct. Uh, one of the problems, in order for them to achieve that kind of wealth, then the exploitation has to be immense. There has to be a tremendous amount of exploitation practice in order to achieve that kind of wealth. And certainly, that kind of uh, exploitation of our people is something that uh, we're fighting against. And so, therefore, you know, uh, you know, uh, but for those who who are who are who are fortunate enough to become being uh, billionaires. If they were truly inclined in terms of the empowerment of people to use their wealth for the empowerment of people, then that's something I could embrace. But the problem is that once, once you, once you, once, the problem is that once people attain that kind of wealth, the propensity or the tendency is for those people, you know, to sort of embrace, uh, to embrace capitalism, and so and for their motivation becomes to make more, more money. And so, for in that context, then the problem becomes that the, the needs and the aspirations of the people become irrelevant. Because their motivation is to achieve more wealth, so I think being a millionaire, billionaire, certainly would would sort of undermine, you know, uh, you know, our struggle in terms of, you know, our liberation of society. You know, I don't begrudge anybody in terms of they have the opportunity to do that, but I'm just saying the same token. We have to be very honest and say that that immense wealth can only be obtained by the exploitation of people. Uh, that's the only way it can be obtained. It's not obtained by an idea. It's not obtained by uh, uh, a good business plan. It's not obtained by uh, relationships. It's obtained by the exploitation of people. 
and that is what, in fact, make that wealth possible. So clearly, you know, uh, for African people, you know, we, we, there's something that we shouldn't, um, you know, there's something that we shouldn't lionize. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't live our lives with the focus or the, or the, or the point of being that somehow, you know, uh, at some point maybe we will become, you know, a millionaire or billionaire. That shouldn't be the focus of our people. The focus of our people should be, you know, the liberation of our folks. You know, um, uh, if if you can obtain a comfortable life, that's fine. But the bottom line is that in the context of struggle, there is, you know, the, this question in terms of comfortability may not be possible in terms of bringing about change in society, and we have to accept that in terms of trying to bring about change. So, But I think that certainly this question in terms of you know, striving to become a millionaire, being there, is not something that's conducive in terms of the empowerment of our people. So I I, I think people have to think very, hardly, very, very hard about this question in terms of, you know, the accumulation of wealth in the society. Certainly, you know, the only way you can accumulate wealth is through exploitation of other people. Um, you, it's, that's, that's just the nature of the beast that we live in. And uh, um, so, you know, uh, that's not the highest aspiration should be the empowerment of the masses uh, and um, empowering people to be able to to enjoy more of what what society has, what technology has enabled us to to have, and um, you know certainly uh, we we in a highly technical society we should we should be able to uh, uh, share the wealth as they say, um, and um, you know so it starts with uh, the structure of the 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 property system, the property rights, uh, and uh, it all begins with property and uh, and how wealth is is is, is uh, accumulated and uh, and transferred, etc. And uh, we you know we we have to look to Cuba and to uh, uh, China and to other other socialist countries to, to see uh, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. We're doing a special program in honor of African History Month under the theme, A World of Illusion and Deception. Please don't be deceived and get out, get out of this world of illusion. It's not good for you. It can be very hazardous to your health. Right now, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we will have our final thoughts on the theme tonight, a world of illusion and deception. You listen to Africa on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. Needs our love. 
Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine... Needs her, Needs her freedom. Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom. Palestine. Needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine Needs her freedom, Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine.
That's right. You are African, and don't you forget that. That's a world of reality, not an illusion and deception. We're welcoming you back to Africa on the Moon. We've been discussing different aspects and examples of how this world is selling you a set of illusion and deception. And don't you be deceived nor be um, far for the okey-doke. What we're going to do right now, we can go to our political panelists and analysts, and we're going to ask them if they would like to give us their final thought on the theme tonight. We'll start off with our Brother Moses. Your final thought for tonight, Brother Moses. Dealing with a world of illusions and deception. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a great show. Um, um, I guess we didn't get into QAnon and all that, all the conspiracy theories and things, but there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation going on in, in the society, and uh, Trump has, has been the master behind all of it, ultimately uh, the big lies in order to maintain the constituency that he wants. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's been a good show. Thank you. The mic is show, Brother Hackey. Your final thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's no question about it. The uh, situation... Uh, you know, for uh, for oppressed people, specifically African people, is becoming more perilous as we speak. Uh, I find it very, very interesting that this society is willing to to to, to spend seven hundred and forty billion dollars for military ventures around the world, in addition to a large contingency fund with additional trillions of dollars for the sole purpose in terms of going around the world killing people in the hopes of maintaining power and control. The irony is that, despite all this military spending, the bottom line is that the world is changing, and no amount of money. It's going to stop the world from changing. Meanwhile, the masses of people who are in need of food, clothes, and housing, education, and so forth and so on, uh, don't get those things. And in fact, um, access to those things is becoming uh, uh, increasingly, increasingly very difficult. So clearly, we got our work cut out for us, and we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that, in fact, that things are going to get better, irrespective of the presidency of Joe Biden. The bottom line is that we're talking about a system in place which is geared toward the empowerment of the few at the expense of the many. And as long as that um, formula uh, exists, then clearly uh, the, the you know marginalized groups, oppressed groups, uh, in particular African and poor people, are going to pay a heavy price um, for for these kind of uh, misadventures undertaken by the U.S. government. So please get, please build those institutions, those organizations, because it's key. Because the situation is not going to change. Uh, we have to understand concretely what it is that we're up against. Why we have to understand what we're up against. What we can do in terms of combating what we're up against. Have a good day, brother Africa. You have a good night. Key, okay, brother Anthony, your final thoughts tonight on the theme: a world of illusion and deception. Yes. Uh, my final thought for tonight is uh, in order to get out of the world of illusion and deception and reality, we have to join an organization that is working for our people's liberation, guided by a revolutionary ideology. 
One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Nkrumah's, our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under, under scientific socialism, and we got and we're guided by the ideology of Nkrumahism to Rayism. Uh, to find out more about our organization, please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And you can find out more information about our program, our history, and our ideology in Krumism Terrorism. Thanks. And we thank you, Brother Anthony, of your contributions to today's program. And in closing, we just would really like to remind the world that this will all be a better world once we come out uh, from living under these illusions and we can no longer be deceived by the deceptions that are going on around the world under the umbrella of capitalism, imperialism, Zionism, and all these forms of systems that have brought human beings and mankind. As we continue to fight against these forms of exploitation, we'll find out that we will begin to start living reality, and once we live in reality, we'll be in a better position to make decisions that will allow us to free ourselves totally. Until next time, we see you next week, and we will leave you as we celebrate African History Month with some words from Andrew Stone as we talk about showing love for our brothers and sisters.
The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> 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 
And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, 
We must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. 
Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area the 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, 
when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the Populist Party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. 
It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. 
In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have change and will have change by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, 
Not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Get up, stand up in the morning. Give it up. Stand up. 
so vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human being, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond, love beyond. Your skin to where you belong. Gave birth to everyone on earth. We 
On and on. On and on. 